If you uh, brought your Bibles with you this morning, would you open with me to 1 Peter chapter 5? It has been a number of weeks since we've actually been in Peter, and uh, if you're looking at the bulletin, you can find the text for the sermon there, or page 1017 of the Blue Bibles. But if you have opened your Bible or are familiar with it, you realize that we are now uh, here at the end of uh, 1 Peter. It's been a number of months uh, that we have been in 1 Peter, but we've come to the conclusion, the coda, the recapitulation of everything that we've been looking at uh, now for, I suppose, nearly half a year that we have been in this terrific letter. Uh, what I'm going to do with this final section today, I'm going to read for us from verse 6 uh, to the end of the letter. Not, not very many verses, but they're, they're dense verses. And so I'm actually going to take two weeks on this same section of Scripture. I'll read uh, the same section uh, both weeks and, and take part of it this week and then part of it next because, frankly, it was just too much to try and fit it all into one sermon. So let me read this in the way that Peter opened his letter. He said, so to the elect exiles, Peter then, of course, articulated the, the regions of Turkey, but to you, the elect exiles scattered in Kanchi and Wayne and in King of Prussia and in Norristown and East and West Norriton and Glenside, to you, hear this portion of God's word. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Thank you, great God in heaven, for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. We know that this world mocks your word as irrelevant to life, and yet here we are, listening to you. Help us to hear, help us to submit ourselves to your word today, and to be encouraged by what you have for us, your people. Thank you for it. We pray in your son's name. Amen. We've come to the conclusion. Everybody loves a grand finale, whether it's a fireworks show 
or whether it is uh, a game seven of some athletic contest or a Super Bowl or a great book or a coda in a great symphony, we like a good finale. The, the drama reaches its crescendo. The main themes are drawn together for one hopefully glorious culmination. And that's what we've got before us today. That's what this section is in 1 Peter. It includes all that you'd want to have. All that you'd want to have from a conclusion is included here. These themes that we've been familiar with now for these many months and these many sections of the letter are brought to the foreground once again. There's tension that mounts in this section because a new enemy is introduced here in this final coda. And the final exhortations are given by Peter to the church along with the final encouragements being provided. And it ends with this, this, on this really satisfying note. At least, I think it's really satisfying when the last words you write are, greet one another with the kiss of love. And may the peace of Christ be with all who are in Christ. All right, let me just for a moment here explain kind of where we're going to go with the sermon today and with the sermon next week as we try to make sense of the passage that is before us. Now, as you heard, when I read this text, Peter here is providing us with the final commands, the final exhortations, the final charge that he's giving to these people as he concludes the letter. And perhaps is as clearly as any place, it is summarized for us here in verse 12, where it says, this is the true grace of God, and then here it is, the final charge, stand firm in it. So everything that I've told you, this is the true grace of God, and here's the final thing I want you to say, or I want you to hear, is to stand firm in this. There are other imperatives, commands that are contained within the section that I've read for us. Humble yourselves is there. Cast your anxieties. Uh, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Uh, resist, right? Resist the devil. Uh, and stay firm in your faith. Those are all there as well, but that last one really summarizes it and gets to the heart of it. I, I, I guess I, I, I picture it like this, uh, and I'm gonna picture it in a couple of ways here just to try and help us see what this is. I kind of look at this like a parent sending their child off to school, maybe, maybe off to college, but maybe just off to the first time of school, and, and you've said a lot of things and you wanna give one final thing that you're saying to that child, and that's kind of what this is that is here as well. Another analogy, and I'll come back to this one in just a moment, is uh, I, I mentioned that you know you love a good grand finale if it's a game seven of a particular series. But if you think of a coach prior to a game seven, uh, uh, the concluding game of, of a series, telling his players what to expect and what he's going to look for from them, giving them uh, a final admonition, if you will, a final challenge. This is kind of what this is like. Now, this whole idea, this admonition, this charge, those imperatives, those commands that I've just articulated, we're going to look at that next week. 
Okay, that's going to be next week. We're actually not going to focus on that this week, but we kind of need to know what they are because they're going to make the other things that we are going to be talking about today uh, make sense. What we're going to be occupied with today in particular are two other elements that are contained here that kind of undergird these concluding exhortations that are given to us. And, and, and here's what they are, and I'll try a couple ways to explain this, but they're this. He provides us, Peter, provides us with the reason why it is so critical and so difficult to stand firm in this world. The, the reasons why, and he's, he's going to then articulate for us one more time what we're facing, what we are up against. I mean, in one sense, standing firm seems like the easiest thing to say in the world, right? Just, just stand. Um, but don't underestimate is kind of what Peter's saying here. There are obstacles to this. There are enemies that are at work. So he's going to explain that to us, and then he's also going to explain how we are able to stand. By what resources, what strength, what power do we stand firm? What are, the, what are the promises? What are the realities that are given to us to buoy us, to encourage us, to strengthen us in our ability to stand? So you've got these three elements, kind of the why, what are you facing, and then the how, what are the resources, and then the exhortation, here's what I want you to do. And if you think of those, Peter has woven those three things together in almost every verse. They go back and forth, rotating between one or the other of those three things as he explains them to us. What I'm going to do in these sermons is take the strands apart. Okay, I'm going to take them apart so that we can look at them piece by piece, and that means we're going to jump around uh, in the text here a little bit so that we can take a look at each one of these things that Peter is saying. And let me come back here, if, if, if that wasn't clear enough, let me come back to the analogy, uh, and it's, it's a very imperfect analogy. I'm, I'm using it with some trepidation because I, there's a human side of this that I don't want us to get caught up in here too much. But nevertheless, a coach getting ready to, uh, to talk to the team before that final game uh, that game seven, is going to tell them a couple things. If, if it's a good coach, he's going to say, listen, this is the team we're facing. You know who they are. You know what they've proven to be. You know their strengths. You know their weaknesses. You know how tough of a team it is that we're going to be playing. The coach doesn't blow that off. The coach doesn't pretend that this is going to be an easy thing. If you're in game seven of a final, you know the enemy's tough and potent. So, so the coach acknowledges that. But then the coach will say, but you guys have practiced all season, we've worked together, we're a team, we play good defense, we've got these strengths, and by those strengths we can overcome this, and then he's going to say, and here's our plan. So here's what we're going to do, and whatever it is, all the cliches, the sporting cliches you can throw into it uh, for a moment, be aggressive, we're going to uh, work hard, we're going to play as a team, etc. But, but those three kind of elements are here in this text, and that's what I want us to kind of try to work through today, even though we're taking them apart. So let's begin here. Let's begin with the why. Why do we need to understand uh, this, this true grace of God? Why is it so hard to stand firm in the grace of God? Well, Peter, throughout this section, kind of provides us with four reasons why 
it is hard to stand firm in the grace of God. Two of them are very familiar to us uh, because we've already seen them throughout the letter. They're the main themes coming back in in the coda. Uh, but the other two, especially the last one, are ones that are brought to the foreground, particularly in this section, to show us why it's hard. So let's go with the first two uh, first here, because those are the easy ones for us to see. They're the ones we are familiar with. It is hard to stand firm in the grace of God in this world because you are exiles in this world and you are going to suffer. You are exiles in the world and you are going to suffer. Those are the two reasons. Those are the two things that we have seen from the very beginning of this book, right? From the very beginning of the, the letter, if we look at uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 6, Peter says to them, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And then he brings it all the way through, of course, in every chapter he deals with the suffering. And he does it here as well. In, in verse 9 in our section, he talks about suffering that's not only being experienced by you, but it's also being experienced by your brethren who are around the world. And then uh, in verse 10, he brings it up once again, after you have suffered. So one of the reasons why it's going to be hard to stand firm is that you're going to suffer for standing firm. You're going to suffer in this world, and that's going to make the task before us difficult, even though it's only for just a little while. The other theme, the other theme is related to suffering, uh, and it's been related to suffering from the very start of the book. Your suffering is inseparable from your exilic status in the world, right? This is what we, I'll just, one verse. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's the way Peter has framed the entirety of this story. You don't fit in this world. The course of this world doesn't flow the direction that the Christian is flowing in by the grace of God. And so you inhabit a world in which, on the one hand, you go, well, this is my home, this is where I was born, maybe this is the town where I was born. And yet Peter is trying to say, nevertheless, you have an exilic status as a Christian in this world. If you didn't have it before and you became a Christian, at that point you received the exilic status and you feel it as you live in this world. Now, that's been very explicit as we've gone through the book as a whole, but here it's kind of, it's kind of brought up by Peter in a fascinating uh, kind of way. It's a little bit more subtle, it's a little bit more indirect. I want to show you in verse 13 how he brings this up because you could easily read over it. He says, she who is at Babylon sends you greetings. She who is at Babylon. And by picking up this word, by the way, so, so we won't go into all this, she who is at Babylon is a church, right? She here is with reference to a church. So the church that I'm with is sending greetings to you. Babylon at this point, Babylon, we know from, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know Babylon as the place to which the Israelites were exiled due to their disobedience. Uh, Judah was carried off by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon where they were held captive, and that was their exile. So Peter says, Babylon, she who's at Babylon has greet you. Well, Babylon is a city in ruins right now. It's not actually Babylon that he's talking about. What he's doing here is he's writing the word Babylon, but it's representational of Rome. So, for example, if you look at the book of Revelation, you'll see that 
comparison made throughout, that Rome can be called Babylon. Uh, and and what's, being, what's happening here is Peter is taking this Old Testament event that took place in the city of Babylon, and now he's applying it to the New Testament identity of the people of God, which is to say, wherever we find ourselves, we are, in fact, in Babylon. We are, in fact, in exile. So Peter has called them exiles. They knew they were exiles. They knew they lived on the far-flung edges of the Roman Empire up in northern Turkey. So they might have been tempted to think, you know, if we were involved in the church at Rome, we'd really be in the heart of things. I mean, Rome is Rome. Rome is the center of everything. But here Peter is writing to them as one who is in Rome and sending them greetings from the church in Rome and calling that church Babylon, calling that place Babylon. Why? Because we share an exilic status. And so Peter is saying to them, listen, just so you know, you guys living out there aren't the only exiles in the world and in the faith, but in fact, we are exiles as well. The church here in Rome are exiles as well. Okay, all right, sorry, those were the two easy ones. So the two easy ones that we've seen before, they're not easy in general, uh, they're only easy because we've seen them throughout. So you've got suffering and you've got the exilic status. The third one that he brings in is one that has been hinted at before, but now is made a little bit more plain for us. Here's, here's the third reason why it's hard to stand firm. When you are in exile and when you are suffering, it is easy to become anxious. It is easy to develop anxieties and to be fearful, to be worried, to be overly concerned about the things of this present world. And that's what is referenced. It's referenced by way of a command to get rid of it, but nevertheless you get rid of something that you're struggling with in verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him. It's easy to become anxious. The temptation when one is anxious is to take matters into your own hands. There's perhaps a little bit of, a, of an unusual pairing here between the call to be a humble person and the idea of not being anxious. Well, the, the idea here is, you know, a prideful person could take things into their own hands, but a person could also, when they're anxious, take things into their own hands and say, okay, I guess it's my responsibility to take care of these situations. And think of the ones that have been already articulated in 1 Peter as particular situations that one would be facing. And Peter says, no, be humble in the face of that. In any case, anxiety is now added to the reasons why it is difficult to stand firm. So you've got three, right? Three things that make it hard to stand firm are your exilic status, the suffering, and the anxiety. And now Peter adds a fourth. He adds a fourth for the very first time. Not only do we have the exilic difficulties, the sufferings and the anxieties, but we have the Gentiles, as we've seen in other places in the letter, trying to lure us into their sinful lifestyles. Not only might we be faced, and this is now to be specific and things that he's brought up, not only might we be faced by an unbelieving spouse or by a master, if we're slaves, who treats us really harshly and really roughly, not only might we be faced by a state 
that while it's supposed to be for those who are doing good, is actually in opposition to those who are doing good. Not only might that exist, not only might we experience societal marginalization, people pushing us off to the side, as if all of that weren't enough, we also have the desires of our own flesh that we've seen that are waging war against us as well. And as if all of that weren't enough, as if, as if that wasn't a great enough catalog of things that stand against us that make us hard to stand firm in the faith, Peter brings up one more. Peter brings up one more, and you know what it is. He points out the ancient foe that exists. Your adversary, verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. A created, powerful being fallen from the grace of God who hates you and who absolutely hates all that God wants you to stand for in this world. He, the devil, is hell-bent on your destruction. What he wants to do more than anything else is to sift you. He wants to destroy your faith and thus to destroy your soul. He is the darkness behind the darkness. He wants you to doubt the goodness of God, to be suspect of the love of God, to wonder about the power of God, to be suspicious of the word of God. He wants you to doubt and question the promises of God. He wants you to be unsure about the grace of God and uh, a, a little bit puzzled by the faithfulness of God in light of the things that take place in your life. And he doesn't want you to think that you will ever be exalted or that there's a place prepared for you. He doesn't want you to have hope. He wants you to believe that you are hopelessly guilty. That's what he wants. He wants to take that feeling that percolates inside of you sometimes to say, I'm worthless and God couldn't possibly love me because I've fallen into this sin again and again. And he wants to latch hold of that and magnify that. He wants you to think that God's truth is hopelessly arcane. He wants you to think that you have been abandoned and that this humiliating life of suffering is something that is not worth it. He wants you to doubt God's goodness and God's power as you suffer. He wants you to look on your suffering and see that perhaps the reason for your suffering is because of you. And God doesn't really care. And God doesn't really intervene to stop those things. He wants you to think, the evil one, the devil, that suffering is incompatible with the life of faith. That those two things don't go together. And so you've got to separate them. Peter is the one who heard, and we've referenced this a number of times, he's the one who heard from Jesus these words, looking at him, at him in his eye and saying, get behind me, Satan. What, what was he saying? What was the reason? Peter was trying to say, Lord, suffering. Suffering and you don't go together. 
And now Peter is explaining why suffering goes together with the faith. The evil one, the ancient foe, is against us. And so that's what Peter does here. He sobers us. He says, listen, listen. These are the things that stand against you. These are the obstacles to standing firm in the faith. These are the reasons why many people just abandon the faith along the way. It's just too much. They can't believe those things anymore. And he wants us to be sober-minded about that, to be reflective about that, to, to be wowed a little bit about those things that stand in front of us because when we're in that position, then he can show us the resources that are available for us to be able to stand. Now, in one sense, when we look at these resources, we could say that it's simply flipping over all of the enemy sides of things because what Peter is saying is, hey, your exilic status is not because you're out of favor with God. Your exilic status is actually because you're chosen by God. And the suffering you're enduring, that's actually not something because God is displeased with you. After all, his son suffered and he was completely pleased with his son. That's actually something God is using in your life. These anxieties are going to be assuaged by the peace of God that is being given to you. And, and this, this evil one who is against you and who stands against you will be overturned by the power of the sun. But nevertheless, let's go through and see what he says specifically here in terms of encouragement for us. I think we can, I'm going to try to, just for the sake of ease of understanding it, try and categorize a little bit the encouragement that is sprinkled through these verses. So Peter says, listen, listen these are the enemies that are against you. You've got to know who God is. Who is God then? If these are the enemies, well, who is God? And the answer is that God is the one with the mighty hand. God's the one with the mighty hand. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Peter says, yes, indeed. Those who stand against you are strong, but God is the one with the mighty hand. We saw this in the passage that we read from Deuteronomy earlier, where we see that the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. One other passage from the Old Testament uh, where it's used frequently, but I'll just, I'll just quote one other one. Oh, sing to the Lord, 90, Psalm 98.1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new psalm, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Uh, Satan may be powerful. He may be a roaring lion on the hunt. Uh, most of us don't have a lot of experience with, with, with roaring lions and with proximity to things like that. If you lived in Rome, you might have because you may have been to the Colosseum and seen something like that. I went to the Narstown Zoo for the first time yesterday. There weren't lions there, but there were jaguars. And I thought, this would be a tough fight. This would, this would be really hard if I were fighting against them. Your enemy is like a roaring lion ready to pounce upon you. He may have a domain. He may be strong. He may be an ancient foe. But one little word from the ancient of days shall fell that ancient foe. One little word fells him. And that word, of course, is the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. One mighty act with his mighty hand is sufficient 
And now the power of God is not only a power that resides in heaven, but in Jesus Christ. The power of God has come down to earth and entered into combat with the ancient foe. Entered into combat as a man with the ancient foe. And in the victory of Jesus Christ, in the victory over Satan in the temptation, in the victory of the resurrection and the ascension, what Jesus has now established is his dominion. His dominion. And that's where the doxology comes in in verse 11. The one with the mighty hand, our Lord Jesus Christ, to him be the dominion forever and ever. The dominion, the power, the reign, the authority, the king, the place where the king rules, the dominion now doesn't belong to the ancient foe. It belongs to the one like a son of man who comes up to the ancient of days. The one who has prepared a kingdom for his people. The craft and power of the devil are great, but they have been subdued by the now eternal dominion of Christ. Satan is no match for Jesus. So God is the almighty God. Who God is, he's the almighty God. But in verse 10, we see something else about him. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace. He's not only the mighty God, which would be good, but it could be simply terrifying that God is a mighty God. But to his people, he is the God of all grace. His favor, his mercy, his kindness, his love. Grace is that power of God, that almighty power of God turned towards, engaged for our salvation. When when Peter says he's the God of all grace, what he's saying is all of that power has now been turned not to push you away, not simply to push Satan down, but to rescue you out and to hold you safe and secure in his good embrace. That's who he is. But that leads us to another question that we might ask. Okay, if that's who God is, that's all well and good. But what is the disposition of God towards us? Because we really are facing a tough situation here with these four difficulties, these four enemies are against our standing firm. What's his disposition towards us? Well, there's this beautiful statement. Part of me wanted to just preach a single sermon on this statement that's found in verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because, and here's the statement, he cares for you. What's God's disposition towards you? He cares for you. He cares for you. And the simple question is, do you believe it? Do you believe the word of God when it declares to those who are in Christ Jesus, he cares for you? That's the disposition. And then you ask the question, okay, if God is almighty and full of grace, if his disposition is that he cares for us, well, what is he actually going to do? What's he going to do with all of that? And listen to the list that is contained here in these verses before us. Let me just do it, first of all, without any comment at all. From the verses. He will exalt you. He will bring you to his eternal glory. He will restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. And he will, and has already, started to grant you peace to all of you who are in Christ. Those are the promises. I'm just reading them. I I organize them. But they're the ones that come right out of this text. 
The passage begins, humble yourselves, but humiliation isn't the end. Exaltation is the end. Suffering isn't the end. Glory is the end. Anxiety isn't the end. Peace is the end. Exile isn't the end. The end is when God takes you and he establishes you in the place that he has prepared for you, the new heavens and the new earth. That's the end. The lament of grieving over the various trials that have come upon us in this life, that's not the end. The end is thanksgiving and joy in the presence of God forever and ever. That's who God is. And, and I think that represents an entire section here. The other question that is related to it, and then we simply come to second after we come to who God is, is who are we in relationship to all of that? And I'm sorry, I've got to go through this as well. There, there are three things that we've seen already throughout First Peter that are given to us once again here. Who are we in Christ? Verse 10, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Who are you in Christ? Since you've been grafted into Christ, since Christ has grafted and grabbed hold of you, who are you now? And the answer is, verse 10, you are the one who has been called. Called. Chapter 2, you've been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And Peter comes back to it here. Who are you? You're the called one. Second thing we are, we are the chosen or the elect. Verse 13, she who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen. Like who? Like you. Like you. This is, this is where the letter started, right? With those great two words that go together that don't go together. To the elect exiles. And that's the same thing that Peter brings it back here. Yep, you're the elect exiles who live up there in Turkey and the church here in Rome, elect ex exiles as well. We are, again, to use just other places where Peter brings this up, chosen and precious in the sight of the Lord. We are a chosen race. That's who we are in Christ. And then finally, in terms of who we are, we are those who are called out to be a part of God's flock, to be a part of God's people. We are not merely individuals who are called to stand firm individually in the face of those enemies, but we are people who have been called to stand firm with people like Peter and Silvanus, who brought the letter, to these churches, and Mark, who brings to them greetings, and the church in Rome, who sends to them greetings. We are part of the church that is scattered around the world. And so when Alistair comes in on Sunday night and greets us from the church in Ukraine, or our brother comes in the week before last and greets us from the church in the Middle East, it's because we're part of that brotherhood. We are part of the household of faith, the people of God. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. And that's what Peter's bringing to the foreground here. Sometimes those Peter are, people are far flung all around the face of the earth, and other times there's close enough to give you a greeting of the kiss of love. That's the community of which we are a part, and that's what Peter is saying to us here in conclusion. 
You're not the only ones, he's saying to them, who are suffering. Right? That's, that's this section uh, that is up here in verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We're the people of God, united, and, and we experience common sufferings. Now, I'm using the word experience only because it's in your ESV, but it's not the best translation of the verb that is there because there's something more deliberate than simply experiencing. As we have seen in 1 Peter, we are participating in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. We are linked together with Christ and we are linked together with each other in these sufferings and we are not just experiencing them, we are accomplishing. We are accomplishing the will of God through these things. It is time for judgment to begin and it begins with the household of God. Right, that's what we saw. It's the end of chapter 4. You can look at it. And so what is being experienced is actually that which is being accomplished by the people of God who are linked together in the suffering of Jesus Christ. We can say it this way in the words of the writer of Hebrews. We then are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. The people who are next to you right now, the people who are in front of you, the people who are behind you, the people who, if they were so inclined, might give you the kiss of love and the peace of Jesus Christ. This then is the coda. The challenges to our faith are real and present and clear. The sufferings, the exilic status, the anxieties that come from that, and the evil one. If you want to put it in the words that are often used and summarized as they were in our Heidelberg Catechism, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The enemies are real. The encouragement to faith of who God is and who we are in Christ is greater still. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The exhortation to stand firm, well, that exhortation stands, and we'll get to that one next week. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you for these promises that are contained in it. Lord, we long to see those things in our lives. We know the enemies well. We thank you for the times when we've seen faith at work in our lives, for our brothers and sisters, and the times that you have see allowed us to be trusting in you and following after you. We pray that that would increase, that more and more we would die into sin and live unto righteousness. Help us, Lord. Jesus, thank you for the perfect victory, for the eternal dominion that you have. We pray in your name. Amen. All right.